We've been talking about for the last two nights how God wants to move us from a purely intellectual experience with Him to something that involves our intellect, but is much more deeply rooted and grounded in our hearts. Amen? Amen. And part of that is understanding some of the things that we believe. Not only do we begin to see God a little differently, we begin to see some of our teachings a little differently. Now, don't misunderstand me. The basic core of what we believe doesn't change. Truth is still truth. Amen? But all of a sudden, we begin to understand why it's so important, especially in today's day and age. Our beliefs become totally new when we begin to see them in the light of the gospel, in the light of God's character, specifically in the light of His love. We were told, and we've looked at this, we were told that we were raised into existence with a prophetic purpose. How many believe that? That we have a mission. That we are part of a larger scheme. That we've brought, been brought into existence for a specific purpose. That we are not just a denomination, we are a movement. That was his exclamation point. He just agrees. And our purpose, yes, we've defined it, we've talked about it, we've read it. The revelation of His character of love. That's what everything we do is supposed to be about. Amen? But it's called a message of mercy. It's the last message of mercy to go to a dying world. That's what we're called to be a part of. How many are excited about that? It's a message of mercy, though. Recently, I was at Lakeport. Anybody here from Lakeport, California? Anybody ever been to Lakeport, California? It's kind of a middle-of-nowhere place. Unless you live there. And it's somewhere for you. But I, I came home from that weekend and I got... Actually, someone had the... They, were, they felt strongly enough about it that they wrote me a letter. They said, Herb, I've never heard your presentations before. They said, we look forward to going online and listening to them and downloading them. They said, but we felt like over the weekend, you really didn't emphasize the stern justice of God enough. And I can understand, understand where they're coming from. Thanks, Gary. I also want to remind you that Ellen White, 20 years into her ministry, said that if the mercy and love of God had been dwelt upon in her own life more and God's stern justice less, she said she would be much further along in her Christian experience. Now there is balance, amen? There is balance. But it's interesting, she never calls our message a message of justice, amen? Now, God is a God of justice, but the emphasis is very different. She talks about child raising. How many have ever raised a child or are in the process of that right now? She makes other statements. She said, if you're going to err, if you are going to be imbalanced, because it's, it's difficult for us as human beings to always be balanced. Am I right? She said, if we are going to be imbalanced, she said, if one thing is going to be justified or emphasized by you as a parent, either justice or mercy, even with raising children, which one does she say it's better to err on? The side of mercy. The side of mercy. Mercy is defined, and this, this 
blew me away when I stopped to actually think about the word. You want to know why I think we don't progress faster in our walk with Jesus? Those of you who still read the Spirit of Prophecy or the writings of Ellen White, I want to encourage you to go home from camp meeting this year and go back through all the books you've ever read and read the parts you didn't underline. Are you hearing me? When we stop to really pay attention to the words that were chosen, mercy is defined as compassion shown toward offenders by a person or agency charged with administering justice. This is the last picture of God we are to leave the impress of upon this planet. A disposition to be what? Kind and what? Forgiving, showing great kindness towards those who have committed an offense. This is the last picture of God humanity is to see. Now, I don't normally quote from her because I believe that we are to be people of the word. Amen? Amen. People of the Bible. And so I rarely use her writings when I speak, not because I don't believe in her, but I believe in her so much that I listened to her when she said, preach from the Bible and not from me. Amen. So I never do what I'm about to do. <laughs> it contradicts everything that I believe, but I am going to share one statement from her tonight because it has been exceedingly revolutionary for me. She said, it is, what does it say? How much? No. How much? No. Now, let that register. It is no part of Christ's mission to compel men to receive him. What does that mean? Force has no part. Dare I also say manipulation? Because manipulation is another form of compulsion, is it not? It's a more subtle form, but it says it is Satan as well as men actuated by his spirit who seeks to compel the conscience. Under a pretense of zeal for righteousness, men who are confederate with evil angels bring suffering upon their fellow men in order to convert them to their ideas of religion. And this isn't always the Inquisition. Do you know what I mean by that? Sometimes it's the peer pressure of our own religious environment. Are you hearing me? But Christ is ever showing, what's the word again? Watch this. This is the methods that Christ used. Christ is ever showing mercy. Ever seeking not to compel, but to win through the revealing of his what? Now, this is interesting. Jesus did not go around presenting heaven or hell. He didn't go around promising rewards or threatening punishment. He sought to win through the revelation of his. And we sit around saying, well, love, love, love. When are we going to get to the meat? Yeah, those of you who are here this week. Yes, you're right. Ever seeking to win through the revealing of his love, he can admit no rival in the soul, nor accept of partial service. That sounds very strong, doesn't it? It's all or nothing with him, whether you like it or not. But notice the next word. She is quick to add that next word. What is it? 
but, although this is true, she is quick to say, but he desires only what? <laughs> Voluntary service. Many of us have no idea what voluntarily serving God is all about. I want to ask you if God came down here tonight and said you are guaranteed heaven no matter how you live the rest of your life you are guaranteed heaven I have decided once saved always saved is going to be the new policy you cannot lose it blank check are you hearing me tonight go there with me in your head Would your life change? Are you hearing me? If it was impossible to lose your spot in heaven, would there be things that would change in your life now that you've been given a free meal ticket? I think a lot of our motives need to be readdressed. If there were no heaven, if there were no hell, if all you had was this life, and when this life came to an end, that's it. Would you still serve him? Would you still be a Christian? And some have said, well, Herb, if there's no heaven or no hell, why be a Christian? That's a very revealing statement, isn't it? There is a third option. <laughs> Even if there's nothing in it for us. Isn't the God of this universe beautiful enough to simply just be worthy of someone loving him back the way that he loves us, even if we get nothing in return for it? Isn't it? Isn't he? That's what it means. He desires only voluntary service. Have you ever hung out with someone that was only hanging out with you because they had to? Anyone ever? Anyone been, been in that situation? How fulfilling is that for you? <laughs> Thanks, Daryl. All day long, Daryl and I have been stuck together today. <laughs> How fulfilling is it for you if you know someone's only there because they have to be? Is it? Men or women, actually, let's, let's talk about women for a minute. Ladies, how fulfilling would it be to celebrate your wedding anniversary if you were there at dinner with a gun pointed at you, compelling you to spend the evening with your spouse? Would that be something romantically enjoyable for you? Men, I won't ask the question. Just kidding. Just kidding. But think about it. If the only reason we're hanging out with God is because hell's going to be hot. And you know something about that because you live in Arizona. If that's really the only reason we're hanging out with him, how fulfilling would that be for him? He doesn't seek to be to compel you to serve him. If you're not doing it completely voluntarily, in other words, it only matters to him if you could be and do anything else. But you freely and voluntarily choose 
to worship and be with him. Only then does it become meaningful for him. I don't know about you, but these kind of statements reveal to my heart that I have a long way to go. Amen. I have a long way to go because honestly, as I said the other night, the whole reason my journey began was it was either go to church on Saturday or get the plagues. That's where it started for me. And for many of us, that is where it starts. I think the greatest satanic deception in our current age is the belief that God is not beautiful enough to win the human heart, that there must be threatenings and bribes included. It produces an environment within a church where self is not dead, but self is simply baptized. It's not conversion, it's self-preservation. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us. It's His love for us that has awakened love in us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. To serve God and no longer have a care for oneself, even with the thought of eternity. That's a high standard, is it not? And you and I are incapable of doing it, but I believe that if we can encounter God's love as it truly is, it awakens that inside of us, does it not? Anyone ever had someone be nice to you? Be honest. Really? What does that immediately begin to awaken in your heart back towards them? The desire to be nice to them. Correct? Correct? And in a very small way, that's exactly what God is trying to do in each one of our lives. Tonight I want to share with you what one of our beliefs. I don't often get to share this point. Because in the presentation, Life Unlimited, when we're doing this for postmoderns, there's a lot of stuff we could share about our beliefs. And we never quite get to this aspect. But I think it's relevant. You see, each one of our doctrines are for the purpose. They're like puzzle pieces. Anyone notice the puzzle table in the back of the auditorium? Anyone notice that? Speakers are speaking up there, pouring their hearts out and... There's a puzzle being assembled in the back, which I thought, well, that's kind of neat. We used to yell at kids for doing stuff like that. <laughs> but puzzles. Now, I can't do puzzles. I was raised on VH1 and MTV, and my attention span is shot. The way puzzles work for me is I open up the box of 5,000 pieces and I get about three of them together and I look at those three and I look at the rest of the box and I say, yep, I bet if I keep at this, all of those little boogers are going to go together just like those three. I'm good. It's <laughs> all I need. It's going to look just like the picture on the front of that box. <laughs> Woo! Only bigger. I don't need that. I like pocket size. I'm a little guy.
But really, that's what our beliefs, all of our beliefs are. They are, in a very simple model, they are puzzle pieces. That if we get them together correctly, we begin to see it's really not so much about the pieces. Are you hearing me? It's not really about the Sabbath, is it? It's not really about the state of the dead, is it? It's not really about how long the wicked burn, is it? All of that is involved as a piece. Are you with me? But when we get all the pieces together, we begin to see what it really is about. There is a God of mercy that becomes revealed through the assembly of these different pieces. Well, I want to look at one of those pieces tonight, and that's the state of the dead. And some of you are like, oh, God. It is probably one of the most cerebrally boring presentations of our 28. But I'm going to ask you, anybody here been seeing God a little differently this week? Anybody been getting a different picture of God? I'm going to ask you to look at some of our doctrines a little differently tonight. Now, I want to also reassure you, you're still going to believe that when you kick the bucket, you're sleeping, okay? We're not going to change that part. But why does it matter? I mean, because honestly, 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 what's the big deal? I mean, even Adventists believe that when a person dies, the next thing they're going to see is who? Oh, so you die and go to heaven. From your perspective, that's what happens. From our perspective, they're what? Sleeping. But the next thing you see when you die is what? In the blink of an eye, you see him. Are you hearing me tonight? So genuinely thinking people out there are saying, why are you guys arguing about this? Whether you say you die and go to heaven or you sleep until Jesus comes to the person that's dead, there's no difference. Are you hearing me tonight? That's what people are saying now. Well, we have more to share on this. I'm convinced, first of all, we're not going to talk about this tonight. We'll, we'll deal somewhat with it Saturday night. We were given the state of the dead not to understand what happens when we die. But so that we could understand the subject of Beth, Beth, death more biblically. And in so doing, understand what Jesus himself was willing to go through because of his great love for us. Are you with me? It wasn't so much that we'd understand what happens when we die. It was so that we could understand what happened when he died. So that we could understand the cross. If that's a new thought for you, I want to encourage you to go on that website that I showed you and download that presentation out of the Life Unlimited series. It was about him. It was about giving us a lens through which to see Calvary more deeply. Those who believe, well, those who don't understand what the Bible actually says about death will never be able to see the depth of the cross. It's interesting to me, um, John Stott. How many have ever heard of John Stott, the great Anglican theologian? John Stott almost single-handedly persuaded through his own biblical presentations the Anglican church to change their position on hell from eternal torment to annihilation. How many are familiar with that historical fact within Christianity? They agree with us now as Anglicans about hell. Well, it's amazing. Months after this took place, John Stott came out with a book. Does anyone know what the title of that book was? The Cross of Christ. 
And it is probably the best book on, on Calvary that has been published in the last 100 years. And it came as a result. It was the fruit of his understanding of death changing. Isn't that interesting? We haven't connected it. God forgive us for not maxing out the potential of what he's given us. We haven't seen it as a, a piece, but the piece. But let's look at it tonight. We believe as Adventists, we believe in the, in the mortality of the soul. Now, why is that important? Well, when I was being raised, now I told you last night how I was raised. A couple nights ago, I told you. Not all my years, but there were a few years that my family and I were, anyone remember? Baptists. That's right. Remember I said in the South, we have more Baptists than we have people. Anyone remember that statement? It's true. We were raised Baptist, and during those years, this was the concept that was given to me, that we are born immortal. Draw this on your, on your uh, papers with me, on your gray section. We are immortal. The soul is immortal. That's what we're taught. The soul is immortal, and so therefore you have God... And your entire life is spent seeking to persuade God to let you spend that immortality in one of two places. What are they? Heaven or hell. You've seen the bumper stickers? Eternity. Which will you choose? Smoking or non-smoking? How many have seen that one? <laughs> And they mean it. And really, if you look at their descriptions of hell, it's no wonder heaven has for so long been thought of by too many as just fat little babies sitting around on clouds playing harps. It doesn't have to be that great. Are you with me? Because look at the competition. It just has to be better than that. And anything would be. Well, this is how I was raised. And the challenge is your Christian experience hits a wall if this is your understanding. You will never get past a motivational barrier of everything you do being for the single reason of trying to motivate God to let you spend your immortality in heaven rather than hell. That will always be at your base core. That will always be your subconscious motivation. In other words, you are locked into an experience where no matter how hard you try, it will always be about who? You. And you say, well, Herb, that's not fair. I want you to just stop for a moment and think about it. What is the most egocentric religion on planet Earth these days? The egocentric religion. What is the most egocentric religion on planet Earth? Because humanism has some very other-centered aspects to it. It's not Hinduism. It's not Buddhism. It's not the religion of Islam. We belong to it. Those who view Christians from the outside, 
from outside of our religious faith think Christians are the most self-centered beings on planet earth. Have you talked to them recently? Do you have friends that aren't Christians? There, matter of fact, that is the largest reason why people don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. I mean, honestly, people don't want to have anything to do with God, not because they had some bad experience with a heathen somewhere. It's because they had a bad experience with a Christian. Remember the bumper sticker I mentioned three nights ago? I'm not afraid of God. I'm afraid of God's people. Have you seen that one? Maybe it's not so prevalent out here in Arizona, but I tell you what, whenever I go back, and if anyone's from here and this is being recorded and maybe you're from here and you're listening to this at a later date, I cringe every time I am invited to the Bible Belt to do a series. It is so hard even within our church to reach even Adventists with an understanding of the gospel in the Bible Belt. Because this, even though we've changed a few elements, is still deeply rooted in their experience. You realize we have three forms of Adventism in North America. How many are aware of that? You have three forms. Up in New England, you have Catholic Adventists. We changed their doctrinal beliefs, but we left their understanding of God and how he operates intact. And we just baptized him. In the South, you have Baptist Adventists. We changed their doctrinal beliefs, but we left their picture of God and how he operates intact, and we just baptized them. Out West, sorry, you have heathen Adventism. Just kidding, Daryl. <clears throat> Some of the stuff you guys do out here would not fly in my conference. Matter of fact, I just was set down by my own local pastor and head elder. And I received a stern lecture about behavior. That would be perfectly acceptable out here. <laughs> I'm just being honest. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> but out here, what we did was we took those who were leaving the religious bigotry of the East... And we gave them some doctrines, but they still have issues with who? And we just baptized that. And so you have a more liberal form of Adventism out here. I'm sorry, you can argue with it, but it's true. It's true. So you have three forms of Adventism in North America these days. And this concept is where most of us are stuck, where I come from, okay? Where I was raised. And then you become an Adventist. Here I am, a Baptist. We become an Adventist. We leave the picture of God intact, remember? All we do is change the doctrines around that picture. In other words, now we learn that the soul is what? Mortal. And that this is really death. Are you with me so far? And evangelism becomes a lot more difficult. 
I'm just being honest. Because you've just taken away the motivator. I mean, really. I'm not saying this is right. I'm telling you what's real. Do you understand the difference? I remember doing a series of meetings in Louisiana? Yeah, Minden, Louisiana in one October and it was around the time of Halloween and the Baptists were putting on one of their, they don't do haunted mansions around there. They do their presentation. They rent a house, they deck it all out and it is a living representation of guess where? What hell is going to be like? And Jonathan Edwards had nothing on these dudes. They sell tickets, and now I have a very sick curiosity. <laughs> My curiosity has caused me to get in trouble with things that you, in your wisdom, would say, Herb, you should not have even been messing with that. But I said, you know what? I can't help it. I got to buy a ticket. I got to know what they think hell's going to be like. So I bought my ticket and I went through that haunted mansion slash hell. Came out the other side. I could not believe what I had witnessed in there in the name of preaching the gospel. That's what it was being called. And outside they had this long line and a table where young per I mean, it was a long line of young people. And they were signing up for something. And so I asked one of the dudes that worked there, I said, I'm, I'm a preacher, um, what's going on here? What's this long line? I said, well, these are all the people that are accepting Jesus tonight as their Savior. <laughs> and I said to them, I said, are you kidding me? He said, yes, isn't it wonderful? I said, no. I said, they know nothing of the, the Savior. You've just scared the hell out of them. <laughs> That's all. Well, he was offended, and that was the end of our conversation. Ezekiel 18.4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as the, soul is, as the soul of the Son is mine. And the soul who sins will what? Die. Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in... 1 Timothy 6.16, Who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light with no man... Which whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. In Genesis 3, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. It is a biblically established fact that we are now what? We are now mortal. Now this adds some really good gospel importance to the equation. Do you really believe that you're mortal? I wish all Adventists understood this. Do you really believe that your soul tonight is mortal? All right, so then no matter how perfect you may become, even if you were able to never sin from birth to the grave, you never even sinned by a thought, your life was pristine perfect you'd still die. 
Are you hearing me? Because no matter how you live, it doesn't change the fact that you are born with an expiration date. Does that make sense tonight? I remember sharing this with a young person once and they had a real hard time with this. It was in a classroom setting and I could see them and I knew them so I knew they were going to wrestle with this part. They were squirming in the back of the classroom in their chair and every time I drove this point home they began to get more uncomfortable and more uncomfortable and more uncomfortable and finally they broke. He stood up in the back of his chair and he said, Herb, if what you're saying is true, he said, well then there's nothing I can do to save myself. And he didn't realize how he'd got ahead of himself. But that's really where most of us need to come to, isn't it? Because we believe in the gospel here. But in here, we are still trying to convince God. Brothers and sisters, if God loves everybody, and I'm going to ask you to think about this before you run me out of town. If God loves everybody, and Jesus died for everybody, then the only reason why someone's not going to be there is because they don't want to be there. That means if you want to be there, you're going to be there. And some people say, well, Herb, that's just too simple. Thank you. If, you, if you'll be happy, and then we have to qualify it. We always do. But if you'll be happy there, you'll be there. Amen? Amen? Now, some of you think you'll be happy there and you won't. That's true. Because some of us have a very egocentric, American, materialistic view of heaven. We've got the couch in the foyer of our mansion already picked out. And it's just not about that. We get up there, we realize the streets are made of dirt instead of gold. Would we still be happy? Yes. You realize there are some Christians that would struggle with that. Some of us think we'd be happy there and we won't. And some of us think we'd be bored to death there and yet it would be truly heaven for us. I think we're all going to be shocked a little bit about who's there and who isn't. Yeah? Speak. Yes. You just said the same thing. Said the same thing. Semantics. She said, I truly believe that everyone that goes to heaven will be happy. And I'm saying, if you'll be happy there, you'll go to heaven. Same thing. Same thing. If it, now, the only reason why you won't be there is because you wouldn't be happy there. So this whole idea of us trying to convince God to let us in. Anyone ever been there before? Trying to convince God to make the decision so that the light above your head switches from lost to saved. Anyone ever been in that position? With, that's been your relationship with God. Out or in. Let me get in. What does the Bible really teach about all this? Well, it's right here. Notice, if we are born mortal, notice what happens. In Genesis 2, 17, it says, But from the, fruit, the tree of the fruit... 
But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely what? Now, when were Adam and Eve supposed to die? See, what Adventism teaches is that, sorry, by that. <laughs> what Adventism what a, Settle down. What Adventism teaches is that we are mortal and so that we have God up here. And really the issue now becomes not heaven or hell, but life or what? It's not life in one place or life in another. It's life or death. How many, even from John 3.16, get that? That whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now think about it. Adam and Eve were born mortal. When Adam and Eve sinned, they lost their conditional immortality. They could not pass on anything to us that they themselves did not possess. So we are born also, even if we could live sinlessly, we are still born with an expiration date. The only way for us to live forever is to accept into our lives the one who is forever. Amen? The one who is life. Amen? Okay, but notice the, the finer details. When Adam and Eve sinned, when did God say they should have died? In the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Did they? No. No. Do you know what the greatest proof is of that? You're sitting here. And if they would have died, would you be here? No, but nonetheless, were they supposed to die that day? Yes, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were no longer entitled to a breath of fresh air, a ray of sunshine, or a particle of food. And the only reason they did not die on that day is Jesus stepped forward as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world and said, I will come and die in man's place. Let the race have another chance. Let the race live. Which means, do you know why you're breathing right now? It's not because you're immortal. It's because you're mortal and your time has already passed. Because how many have sinned in this room? And in the day that you sinned the very first time, do you realize you should have died? The only reason you're breathing right now is because the God of this universe said, let them live. I'll die on their behalf. I will die in their place. That means that every person on planet earth tonight, whether they ever become a Christian and accept him as their savior, every person on planet earth tonight nonetheless still has Jesus as a savior right now. They're breathing right now because he is already their savior, saving them every moment of their life. And if God is already, if the option is life or death, are you hearing me? If the options are life or death, and before you even realized it, you should have already been dead, that means what is God giving to you? Which although as simple as that sounds, what that means is that the God of this universe has already made the decision for you. He has already chosen that you should live and not die. Now 
Remember the illustration we used last night about the lights being turned on to the electric plant? The lights in here, where are they turned on at again? The power plant. Can you imagine what life would be like in your homes if the on-off switch were never invented? What would your home sound like? What would be running right now? The kitchen alone would drive you nuts, would it not? Blenders, dishwashers. And in all reality, each one of us should be dead, but God has flipped the switch on. And He's hoping that we'll just leave it that way, that we'll accept what He's done for us. Are you hearing me? Acceptance, faith, repentance, confession. They don't make Jesus at that moment become your Savior. Someone says, well, I was saved in 1979. You were not. Jesus has been saving you long before that. Amen? You just accepted it in 1979. I remember the morning that this broke upon my heart. In a short testimony of my story, some of you have a hard time with me, and you've already told me that this week. And I respect you, and I appreciate that. Some of you think I'm too light on the standards. Please understand where I'm coming from. I believe in them, but sometimes I do poke fun at them because some of them are really silly. But you have to understand, my junior year of high school, I'd just become an Adventist. My junior year of high school, I came this close to failing. And the reason I came so close to failing that year was because I was, and this is no exaggeration, I was memorizing, instead of doing my schoolwork, I was memorizing at least 50 Bible verses a day. Now, I don't remember any of them now, short-term memory. <laughs> but 50 Bible verses a day. And do you know why I was doing it? To try to convince God to switch the light over my head from lost to saved. Are you hearing me tonight? We have a large emphasis on health, and I've talked about that jokingly this week. But I do believe that we should be healthy. But it's about health. Are you hearing me? That's it. It's not about the life to come. It's about the life here and now. There's going to be a lot of pork eaters that made it to heaven. Sorry. It doesn't mean you should eat it now. I mean, Martin Luther was a drunk. And thank God for what God was able to do through a drunk. We have a hard time getting our head around stuff like that. Does that mean we should drink? No! But don't be so quick to judge. When I became an Adventist those first two years, everything I read about health, I followed to the T. I had no sugar in my diet, no salt in my diet, no fat in my diet, no flavor in my diet. If it tasted good, I spit it out. I was two meals a day, six hours apart. Are you hearing me? 
Saturday night I had fruit and fruit and popcorn. No root beer. No, 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 no root beer and ice cream. But I want you to understand where I where my headspace was. It was because I genuinely believed that if those I ate those things, that I was going to go to hell. Based on those things alone. My entire motive was about me switching that light bulb. I read in the spirit of prophecy how how belts are bad for you. The one single statement, but somehow I found it. I'm wearing one, by the way. But I decided since belts were bad for me, I should start. I am not exaggerating, and Gary's going to laugh because he's heard me say this before. But I started wearing suspenders. Are you hearing me? And don't misunderstand me. If God has called you to wear suspenders, do it. All right? But understand why I was doing it. To get the light to switch above my head from lost to saved. That is stupid. That suspenders would switch the light? Is it really that small? But I was so zealous as a young person, as a teenager, I decided that if my pants were too heavy to be suspended from my waist and that they should be suspended by my shorts, I'm so shoulders. <laughs> Your head gets ahead of you. Some of you have heard this story before. I decided that if my pants were too heavy and they needed to be suspended from my shoulders, then my boxers were heavy, too heavy too. But how do you suspend both your pants and your boxers simultaneously when you tuck your shirt in? So I started wearing two sets of suspenders. True story. One inside my clothes and one on the outside. And I wore bigger clothes so they could be suspended from my... And people that knew me back then still make fun of me today. I thought, what is the most painful way to serve God? Because certainly that will let the light switch from lost to saved. So I spent five years co-portering. <laughs> Not leads. Cold doors. Understand, I was zealous. Give me the hardest task and let me accomplish that. Because certainly that would win God's decision that I should be saved. Now, some of you have not gone to those lengths, but you know exactly the headspace that I'm talking about. What I'm saying tonight is, if you should already be dead, you don't need to do anything to switch the light above your head. Are you with me? God has had it switched over there every moment of your life. And that's why you've been breathing. Because His decision for you already is saved. And the gospel is not go out and convince people to do things so that God will switch the light for them. It's that God has switched the light. Go tell them and see if they'll leave it on. Do you understand the difference? And if that's true, then what happens to your motive? It's no longer to convince God to let me live instead of die. It's no longer about me. My motive now becomes, God, thank you so much for being my Savior even before I knew you. 
your heart becomes so overwhelmed with gratitude and appreciation that it truly breaks everything inside of you. And you say, you know, I want to spend the rest of my life serving a God who loves me like that. He's willing to take care of me like that. I was trying so hard, brothers and sisters, to try and convince God to save me from the death at the end of the millennium. Do you understand? When what I heard him saying to me that morning was, Herb, you don't get it. You're trying to convince me to save you from some death in the future. I have been saving you every waking moment already from multiple deaths every time you sinned already in the past. My decision is already that you should live. Now I tested it. We don't have time to go through the rest of this, but it's all there. I tested it. I remember that morning saying, but God... That seems too easy. You understand how high strung I was on this end. And you better believe when that snapped, did the pendulum swing over here? Yeah, and through the years it continues to go back and forth. Not in the grand swings that it used to. Are you hearing me? But it's, you know, we're all growing and trying to find the middle. Are we not? The balance, are we not? The intrinsic rather than the imposed. That's what we're looking for, isn't it? That's what the balance really is. But I remember that morning saying, well, God, what if I choose to not serve you? Are you going to continue still keeping me alive? I mean, I was a teenager. These are the questions I asked God. Are you going to continue to bless me and take care of me and love me? You know what I heard him saying that day? He said, Herb, the only reason I ask you to love your enemies... And to bless those who curse you. And to pray for those who spitefully use you. is so that you can be like me. So that you can understand what it means to love the way that I do. He said, you have yet to see me, Herb. You have yet to understand me. But even if you choose to be my enemy, I will still love you. Even if you choose to spend the rest of your life cursing me, I will still bless you. And even if you use all of my gifts and my mercy and my grace for selfish pursuits, even if this life is all you are willing to take from me, then I will still continue to give it to you because I at least want you to live at least one life. I love you, Herb. I'm in this for you, Herb. Not for what I can get from you, Herb. And I heard God whispering to me, Herb, even if there's nothing in it for me, I'm still in this for you. And I tell you what, up until that point, like I said the other night, I served God for how He would bless me if I did. But that day something switched inside and I began to serve God because of how He would bless me if I didn't. My whole motive for following Him became different that morning. That's what He wants for us, amen? That's a window. Now I'm not telling you I've arrived. I'm not telling you I've been proud. I'm just sharing with you a little story that happened to me when I was 16. 
I've made tons of mistakes since then. Tons of mistakes. Anybody else in the room fallen? Anybody else a sinner? Well, I can understand why Paul, if he was the chief of sinners, why he was chosen to preach much more about than grace. Because you can only preach it once you've tested it. I'm sorry. That's when you really believe in it. But that's what God's calling us to, a message of mercy. Are you hearing me tonight? And what God is whispering to the world is that we would begin to see within the veil what he's been doing every waking moment of our life. Is that a reason to explain some, to someone immortality versus mortality? Is that a reason to share it with them so they could see God like this? Yeah. No wonder God has given us these pieces. But once again, they're just lenses through which we begin to see what he's done for us. And it's beautiful. Adventism, I know some of you have been burned. Someone came up to me recently who's no longer an Adventist, and they said, Herb, how can you believe the gospel and still be an Adventist? I know some of you have been burned, but I still contest that the teachings of the Adventist church, if understood in the light of the gospel, are the most beautiful teachings on this planet. And they are of relevant value to your personal growth with Christ. And the only reason that they have hurt at times is because they've been abused. They've been separated from the love that gives them their power and their efficacy. And they've been, they've been used to manipulate and control and compel when God only ever gave them to us to reveal his love to the world and try to win them through it. Amen. That's the kind of Adventism I want to be a part of. Amen. That's really what it means to be an Adventist. Certainly, the Lord is coming back soon. Amen? It is high time that the message He has called to be given truly becomes a message of mercy. The state of the dead was only given to us so that we could understand how merciful He has been to us every waking moment of our lives. I'm supposed to be closing right now. Let me just say this one thing, and then I'll let you go. Just be glad Paul's not here. Herb quits at eight something. Paul would have you four more hours. And then expects you to be back tomorrow night early. Some will say, Herb, how can you say that... I had one guy stand up in one of my talks. How can you say all of this? It sounds to me like what you're saying is that God has never treated me like I was a sinner. I said, that's exactly what I'm saying. If God were to treat you like a sinner for one moment, you'd be dead. He said, well, that doesn't make sense to me. He said, I used to do construction work. And I was withholding tithe for a few months. He said, and one morning I showed up to the construction site. I had a circular saw in my hand and I was working on this little project. And I was coming down the board. He said, I nipped off the tip of my finger. He said, I grabbed it, threw it on ice. I'm sorry, it's gross. But he said, we, I ran to the, English, the, to the emergency room. They sewed it back on. He wiggled it for me. It said, it even works today. He said, but when I got the bill for the emergency room, he said it was to the penny what he owed in back tithe. And I'm certain that, God, that there's a power that be out there that would love for us to think God's name is Guido. Either you give it to him or he'll take it out of you. That doesn't sound like God to me. 
but I understood where he was coming from. Now, I don't believe that was the discipline of God. But does God sometimes discipline us when we sin? As a loving parent, doesn't he do that? And brothers and sisters, when you have done something you know to be wrong, do you deserve that discipline? When you have done something you know to be wrong, do you deserve that discipline? When you have done something you know to be wrong, do you deserve that discipline? No! You deserve death, not discipline. The wages of sin is death. Discipline is redemptive. So even when he disciplines you, he is having mercy on your soul, causing you to live on in hopes that you would want to spend eternity. Even the discipline of God is an act of grace, is it not? Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we've spent this evening. Lord, we are covering, Father, some of my favorite aspects of the gospel this week. Parts that have just so deeply touched my heart and things that I believe the whole world needs to see. And Father, I can tell by the amens tonight, I'm not the only one in the room that feels this way. Father, we all long to fulfill the purpose finally that you called us into existence to fulfill. Father, Adventism's been here too long. The world's gone on too long. It should have been over ere this. We should have been in the kingdom long before this. Could it be that you're still waiting for everything we do to be a revelation of you and your heart for this world? Could it be, Lord? If it is, Father, I'm praying for a miracle that you would change us as a people, Lord, that you would change us from the inside out, that you would start in the hearts of, of us. And that we would begin to be the kind of Adventist that you intended Adventism to be. Father, bless us to that end. In your name we pray, amen.